2: Welcome to the Cheap Seats. This is the show where we get you front row seats for the best LG BTIQ spoken word events from Melbourne and from around the world. I'm Dean and it's great to have your company. Tonight, we are in the Cheap Seats at the San Francisco Library for a conversation with Tales of the City author, Armistead Maupin. For almost four decades, Tales of the City has blazed its own trail through popular culture, from a groundbreaking San Francisco Chronicle newspaper serial to a classic novel, then onto a television miniseries viewed by millions of people around the world. First published in 1978, Tales of the City was the first of nine novels about the inhabitants of the mythical apartment house at 28 Barbary Lane in San Francisco. It is both a sparkling comedy of manners and an indelible portrait of an era that changed forever the way we live. So let's grab our snacks from the candy bar, turn our mobile phones to silent, and take our seats as we listen to the conversation from The Cheap Seats on Joy 94.9.
3: Is there anyone in the house who hasn't read Tales of the City? (laughs) Oh, good. So there's new fans all the time. (laughs) Excellent. Have them taken away. I was trying to figure out if we had to worry about spoilers, but do you have to worry about spoilers it, for a 40-year-old novel? You do. It's,
0: yeah. it's really, it's strange, you do. Depending on who's in the audience, you know, I think it might be, we can probably
1: right.
0: let go of the spoiler alert tonight. I'll, 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 um, I'll try to be but careful. But it, it, it is a really good question because it does happen when, when people stand up in the middle of the room and say, how could you have done that to Mona? <laughs> and, and three other people look around and What happened to Mona?
3: And then they get really mad. You ruined <laughs> yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so, yeah, talk a little about about how the Tales of the City were born in the newspaper, for people who uh, remember newspapers in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, where did, where did it start? Was it your idea? Did
0: somebody say to you, young reporter, why don't you give us some fiction? How did, it, how did that happen? Um, I, the short version, I was writing for the Pacific Sun, uh, which is still there, mm-hmm. um, and uh, doing feature stories for them, sort of around the town, Column. And a woman friend of mine said, You will not believe what happens down at the Marina Safeway on Wednesday nights. <laughs> and so I went down and I observed this, this extraordinary heterosexual mating ritual of the, <laughs> of the women in the rhinestone studded brush denim pantsuits <laughs> with like two items in their cart. <laughs> chatting up similarly duded up guys in the vegetable department. <laughs> I'm told that it still goes on. I've talked to some young people who say they call it Dateway. way. <laughs> but I'm just imagining them there standing there, you know, looking at their cell phones in the vegetable department. <laughs> but uh, I couldn't write a, a nonfiction story on it because I couldn't get anybody to admit that they went... Mm. To the grocery store to get laid, <laughs> so um, I made up Marianne Singleton, and uh, in a in a one-off, Marianne Singleton goes to the Safeway. It's the thing that's still in the miniseries and the, the, with Connie Bradshaw and the Carts, and she meets the guy that's finally meets the guy that's not a creep, and he's there with his boyfriend. <laughs> And it was sort of struck a nerve in 19, uh, you know, seventy-four. I guess it was. And uh, they asked me if I'd keep on writing it. So I did like five episodes for The Pacific Sun, bouncing around to things that I knew about. So there was like a bathhouse chapter, and, and I had to introduce a gay male character. Well, he was already there from the Marina Safeway. Okay. And it started to grow. And then I had always had a, a, an address in mind, a sort of fantasy address that I would write about one day. It was twenty-eight Barbary Lane, um, and uh, Charles McCabe. I don't know how long to make this story, but it's kind of interesting. Charles McCabe, if you remember, the grand old uh, columnist from the Chronicle. Oh no, just just dead out there. <laughs> Oh, Charles would hate that um, but he was a big red faced homophobic, misogynistic uh, drunken Irishman mm-hmm. who thought all homosexuals in the world were bad except for me <laughs> for some reason he took a, he, a liking to me and, and he had read the thing in the Pacific Sun and said I think we need something like this in the Chronicle so he brought me in to meet the uh, you know the Tyriot family, and um, the whole thing started, and then they started figuring out there were queers proliferating <laughs> in this day to day column Was uh, it every day?: It was five days a week. Wow.
3: Any writers in the house shivering at that idea of five
0: days a week i didn't deadline? know enough to, i didn 't know enough to be af- afraid of it as I would be now yeah yeah. Um, I just plowed in and um, and then let things, you know, things started happening. And then they started coming to me. You know, somebody said, uh, if you think the Marina Safeway is something, you should go to the laundromat uh, down at, uh, uh, it's, it's down in the, uh, in Hollow somewhere. And I went down there to check it out because it was supposed to be a big single scene. And it was called the Come Clean Center. <laughs> It was a gift, you know. It <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so it was, uh, you know, then I'd seek things out. I'd hear that the co-ed, there was a co-ed bathhouse opening on Valencia Street called the Sutro Baths. Co-ed meaning that men and women would go there. I guess it was sort of largely, it must have been a big, it must have been our bi, early by population, as well as a certain number of women who just wanted to fix a fag. <sighs> And I thought wouldn 't that be funny if Brian, my raving heterosexual character, gets all excited about this and goes down to the sutro baths to get laid and meets this total babe who 's ready to hop in the sack with him uh, but and, and she begins with "How long have you been gay?" <laughs> and he goes to i 'm not gay." It's okay, you know. So there's this whole. He ends up having to scrounge up some experience in camp when he was 13 years old <laughs> to certify his homosexuality to this woman. And I thought I was kind of proud of having that twist on that uh, that sort of twist on things that that early. Well, Brian is a, a
3: big character. Um in the first book and all the way up to the ninth book. I mean, Brian, Brian, spoiler alert, Brian survives. Um, but,
0: uh, I love him. I love him. He's
3: a fabulous character because when I, I just reread the first book and I thought, he's kind of a dick. And uh, and I sort of think of all these characters fondly, but when you actually go back and sort of reread some of the books, you think, oh, yeah, they're, they're actually quite complex. And one of the, the great moments is when Brian and, and Mouse, Michael, uh, who are living in the same rooming house, wind up sunbathing side by side. And, and I imagine that must have been a... A very novel thing at the time to have an out gay guy and a and a non homophobic straight guy
0: hanging out and talking in generic terms about going out to get laid. Yeah, and
3: then they go out somewhere where they can both pick someone up.
0: Yeah, uh, pick separate people up together. Split up a couple was what Michael said. (laughs) Um, but it was yeah, it was just celebrating that thing that thing that sustains me to this day, which is some very tender uh, heterosexual male friendships, you know these guys, through no accident, also are you know great husbands uh, and and to their wives and um And I wanted to celebrate that. I wanted to actually sort of crack the notion that it was utopian to suggest that the people who lived at 28 Barbary Lane would never have lived there for real because I saw it happening all around me. Uh, There's a moment
3: where Michael's dating John who's uh – a gynecologist, mm-hmm. and uh, or maybe it's the moment when they're not dating quite so closely. But John goes off to you know what I guess we'd call the a gay group. Yeah. Now a lot of the things in the book seems like they're still very current, but there was something about that moment where I thought, does this still exist? Where there are these sort of wealthy closeted men who get together, and I mean, is is do you think the
0: closet exists in the same way? Not in the same way. No. Those men still exist. God knows. <laughs> I don't get invited to their parties. Well. So. <laughs> I called it the Deckerarchy in the books. <laughs> because it was ruled by some very, very, um, you know, high-flown queens of, of fashion and, and uh, design. Right. Who were extraordinarily racist, you know. Mm-hmm. The, the maid would come in and lay the food down at the table. And uh, if they were talking about something they didn't want the maid to hear, he would go, meaning, ooh, ooh, ooh. Brown skin in the room.
2: Joy ninety four point nine is a GLB TIQ community radio station in Melbourne, Australia. Support Joy 94.9 by becoming a member.
3: So a character like Michael Tolliver, who's really the, the main gay protagonist in the first book, it, it, was he someone that you uh, modeled after anyone in particular, or was it a little of yourself and a little of friends? And where did yeah, he come a, from? A
0: little of me and a little of what I wanted to go to bed with. <laughs> nice. Nice. I, I spilled it enough to f- fantasy to give him life, and then used you know tried to use some of my own foibles. I certainly didn't. I would never have uh, gotten into a jockey short stance contest. I would have... (laughs) in a million years. Um, But uh, I did meet a guy at the Twin Peaks one night, very handsome, preppy guy who was really coming on strong and who, when we got to his house, said, you know what really turns me on about you? You're Weegians. (laughs) That's the old penny loafers we wore in the old days. It was like a preppy, preppy signifier, um, and boy, did he like Weegans. Uh, I, I got we got to his house and he had framed pictures of Weegans on the walls, just the Weegans, you know. Uh, uh, he had an ad in the Advert for, uh, for years that said Bass Weegins. This this is not news to people who've read the novel because it's there in the novel. And but the detail that I didn't have at the time that I wish I'd had was that he was the desk he was the night clerk at the Huntington Hotel, which was the last hotel at the time that would um, shine your shoes if you left them outside the door at night. <laughs> And this guy would prowl the hall looking for Weegians. (laughs) Wow. I don't know what surprises the owners found in the morning. I can't even begin to imagine. (laughs) And that's your Halloween story for tonight. (laughs) Costume idea. The clerk at the Huntington.
3: Did you have a sense when you were writing? I mean, you're writing for the Chronicle, which goes out to everyone in the city, and yet you're also writing about... You know, fetishes, and you're writing about, uh, uh, you know, underground nightlife. Did you have a sense of how you were supposed to balance those things, or did you just wait for the editors
0: to tell you, you can't do that? Yeah, I pretty much waited for them to tell me. So
3: you would push it as as
0: far as you could. Yeah, and it would vary all the time. And I'd have these ridiculous conversations. What do you mean I can't say shit? I said shit last week. (laughs) That was part of a word, that was shit kicker. I personally think shit-kicker is much worse than shit but <laughs> in the scheme of things. But, um, yeah, it was a constant mm-hmm. battle with them in that regard. And But I sort of knew. And I ended up using a lot of – because I couldn't do fuck as an expletive. I ended up using a lot of, of uh, Jesus and God damn it, more than I would ever in my own life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were people who finally wrote and said – have you got anything against Christians? You know, it was like <laughs> And I thought it was a fair enough question. You know, like I'm because of your Calvinist Lord and our culture, I can't say the word fuck, so I have to say the name of your Lord. So I'm <laughs>
3: <laughs> it's funny how that worked out. <laughs> yeah. So you uh so Started out writing, uh, really just following these leads like the Safeway and the Come Clean laundromat, and then at some point was it like I'm writing a novel in in pieces? And 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 what was that sort of realization for you? Did did you have to think, oh boy, I got to think about where this is
0: all going? And, and those it, it was, the computer was adjusted basically yeah. is what happened. Yeah. Uh, by the time I'd gotten to. Um, Baby Cakes, I, no, yeah, Baby Cakes, the the, the English-American one. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is the fourth in the series. Right? Yeah, the yeah. fourth. Um, I knew what I was doing, and I realized that it would take, like, four daily episodes to make one chapter. And I was thinking in terms of both the novel and the daily column mm-hmm. as I was writing. Mm-hmm. Um, And I had, you know, in all of the books, I've had a real shot at working on it when it was done. It was my first draft. And when people sort of say reverentially, I want to go out and print out all your early newspaper columns, I think, please don't, you know. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want you to see that mess.
3: Uh, Let's talk about um, perhaps the most beloved character in the books, Mrs. Madrigal. I was really interested, okay, so maybe this is a spoiler. I was interested to learn that uh, that mrs Magical's identity is not fully explained or revealed in the first volume of Tales of the City.
0: yeah uh, you know they all I sort think of we blur say, together. I think we can me. say transgender because I'm, yes. I'm, I'm I'm proud of it
3: <laughs> yeah, so in the first book, when you read it, um, she's just mrs magical she's anna yeah and uh, and there's this hint that a black male is afoot, that someone knows her secret and uh, it doesn't come out uh, right away. But it was interesting to me that it didn't come out in the first book. Was that a conscious choice? You
0: know, I owe that to the Chronicle, the prissiness of the Chronicle. (laughs) Because I told, I said, Mrs. Madrigal is uh, a transsexual, I think was the term I used at the time. Mm -hmm. And um, oh, well, you can't. You cannot do that. Not not the first year. You can't do that for the first year. It here's my favorite part. It will upset the people in the sunset. <laughs> I lived on Russian Hill, but that was kind of frightening sounding. The people in the sunset—they <laughs> sound like a twilight horde, it, it really. Yeah. <laughs> but that's exactly the way—that's exactly the way they demonized the readership, and they had very little idea of what was happening in the city when I when I introduced. Um, when I responded to Anita Bryant the day after she announced her campaign, campaign in the San Francisco Chronicle through my character, uh, they were fighting me like crazy saying, why does anybody in San Francisco care what's going on in South Florida? They didn't even have a dream that, you know, we were riding the crest of an enormous movement. Um, And that was my exhilaration. I have to say, I really want to stress that since I've been given this wonderful opportunity by the library. Thank you very much. This is crazy good (laughs) Um, to see yourself uh, up in a bus shelter like an Amsterdam whore. It's just a... (laughs) It's... It's it's intensely satisfying. I... (laughs) I have lingered on the Muni platform far longer than I should have. So, How many selfies have you taken with this Oh, posters? just a few.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> How do I keep that Xlax ad out of the side, though? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it's been very satisfying, and, and, and I'm most, uh, I'm, what I'm really proud of is that I feel that I have been part of a revolution, I've been a literary component of a revolution and, I, and I've, uh, that's what's mattered to me the most uh, throughout my career, at first it wasn't that obvious because I was having such a good time uh, it was just my life mm-hmm. and then uh, you know, having to having, uh, vowing when AIDS came along to just f- <laughs> follow come hell or high water, I kind of chickened out in 1989 with Michael because he was HIV positive and I thought he was going to die mm-hmm. and I didn't want to write a story in which the gay man died at the end mm-hmm. um, and uh, so it was uh, it was a, the most thrilling thing in the world was to realize what I wanted to write a new novel and I wanted to be about a uh, an HIV-positive man in his fifties, and uh, who's living in San Francisco today—sort of something that might echo uh, in uh, Christopher Isherwood's *A Single Man*. You know that because we all love that book. Everybody, every writer I know does. And uh, and then I realized I had such a guy in Michael Tolliver, and that he would be alive.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and so. You know, it was an, it was wonderful to be able to hop back on board the train after my big share exit in 1989.
3: <laughs> you are the share of writers, like you've had a hit every decade, right? It's like uh, <laughs> for
0: like five decades or something. I, don't, I, don't know. <laughs> I know. I don't think i been... Mean, <laughs> I've been very lucky. I've been very blessed. The Cheap Seats, for LGBTIQ
2: spoken word events from Melbourne and the world, every Thursday night at 10pm on Joy 94.9.
3: Cheap Seats. Let's talk about AIDS because it, it you know, you start writing this book in uh San Francisco during the golden age of promiscuity and everybody is having sex with everybody else in the first book. You know, it's it's even to even to you know, our liberated eyes today, when I read the book I was like, Wow, everybody is fucking everybody else in this book. <laughs> That's why it's so warm. The seventies are so friendly. Um But, of course, you didn't know. None of of us knew that AIDS was coming along. And I'm I'm not sure what that moment would have been like. I'm a little too young to sort of remember the exact beginning of the epidemic. But uh, do you want to talk about that for you? Well, it was a
0: single thing in my life, as it is with most of us. In the beginning, when the epidemic came along, it was just personal. It was someone you knew. Or maybe a, a headline on New York Magazine that said, The Gay Plague, and had everybody talking. Um, but, um, I had a a little brother in my extended family, um, who was uh, 25 and had moved to New York to work for Perry Ellis and was just the sweetest guy. He was loved by so many people. Um, and he got pneumocystis, one of the first people to die of pneumocystis pneumonia and went very quickly and we were just gobsmacked, uh, the people in our little household that knew this guy. Uh, and then, of course, it was happening all around us. We were seeing it everywhere. and um, uh, It's so hard to encapsulate this thing, isn't it? I, it really is. Um, the panic and the uh, and the fear and the horrible, horrible dread that we were going to lose the liberation we had earned because we'd been found out to be naughty boys and they were going to punish us for it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: All of the residual... Calvinist guilt that so many of us had to shake off when we came from somewhere else, um, come came rushing back in the midst of terrible suffering and all of that. Um, so I uh, I resolved that I was going to have one one of the characters die off screen, mm-hmm. and then show the response to it. Uh, you know, and it was if I had. It, uh, it was my version of the death of little Nell in Dickens. I mean, people were furious.
1: Mm.
0: How dare you spoil my light morning entertainment with your political campaign. Right.
1: Right.
0: That's when I realized that so many of my brothers and sisters were not fully connected to their own true good selves yet. You know, that we could so easily... Um, miss that connection but this was the city that rallied really when it that's when one more thing san francisco can be proud about this city really rallied in every direction the women uh lesbians came in and were ready to you know to roll in terms of caring for people and um all of that so um
3: yeah yeah um Some things are constants, and then some things change. And uh, I just want to read a line from very early in Tales of the City. Uh, Marianne is looking for an apartment. Quote, she wanted a view, a deck, and a fireplace for under $175 a month. (laughs) (laughs) You're laughing, but I wept. I
1: mean...
0: 175 won't even get you a bad motel room in this town. I haven't town. got any of those things right now. <laughs> <laughs> I have a cornice. I've, I've, I'm, I'm getting off on Edwardian ar- architectural details, you know. And, but we can do it with everything. I'm rather loving living in our modest abode mm-hmm. um, because it is, it is taking me back to my Marianne years. And I love being able to have, you know, it's the greatest thrill. And the, one of the reasons that the Castro is so expensive is it offers village life in its purest, most wonderful form. You can get to everything, you could buy what you need. You can, and there are, there are many such neighborhoods like that in San Francisco and we've, we find them. And, uh, and that all adds up to something that makes a city and was what we were missing when we were in, out living in this, the most beautiful adobe house in the middle of the desert. The, the thing we miss, missed was that, that dynamic, dynamic.
3: Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot. Rainbow crosswalks in the Castro, thumbs up or
0: thumbs down? Uh, they're better than anybody else's rainbow crosswalks. <laughs> I looked them up. The ones in Sydney, you know, uh, I don't think they made them take them up. Actually, the city council said it was distracting to people. You notice how i'm not answering this question it wasn't a fair question <laughs> And the la ones are big wide yeah. humongous things yeah i think it's kind of, I actually used it as a reference point the other day there were two women from from uh, australia who were saying now where where are the bars along here where are the stuff and i said go down to the rainbow crosswalk and walk off in any direction for two blocks and and then wander out from there so, yeah. So they help. They're okay. I don't know. What I'm scared about is the new streetlights. They have some sort of festival lighting or something that comes out of
1: hmm.
0: So we'd be, be maybe twinkling like a spaceship by this time next week. I have no idea. <laughs> well— this thing's way up at the top. They, they can do rainbows with them, apparently.
3: But I think you can handle lighting because uh, you've been to Burning Man now a couple of times, yeah, right? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I think we have some burners in the house here, right?
0: Yeah. Yes, I love that lighting. <laughs> <laughs> Very becoming.
3: So, in the in the most recent book, which just came out this year, which is the days the days of Anna Madrigal, which is a beautifully written book, and oh, um, thank you. oh it's just it's I mean, it's so nostalgic because it's announced as the last of them, and, yeah. and Anna Madrigal is quite old. Um, but this is the book where um, Michael, who now has a a, a younger husband named Ben, um, is going to Burning Man, and he's sort of dragged there. A, In a a bit of a grouchy mood, is this is this autobiographical? Imagine that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's completely autobiographical. (laughs) We're going to need the earplugs for what? (laughs) We have to have earplugs to sleep. (laughs) How close is the rave? (laughs) No, I'm not going on the naked bicycle pub crawl. (laughs) Why not? Okay, one naked my big fat white ass on a bicycle seat. What was the other? Pub, drunk and naked on a bicycle. (laughs) Um, I mean, we we really did have sort of really comic battles over it. All the while, Chris was just patiently sewing away, making outfits for me and saying, don't worry, it's going to be okay. There's a reason you have to have lights on you at night when you ride across the playa. And by the time I'd been there for two days, I was already yelling, dark wad at people that weren't lit. (laughs) I was a, fr- a little bit afraid, and this is reflected in the book, that it would be sort of wonderful but kind of mean like a summer camp in the same way. And that there would be rules mm-hmm. and, you know, of that oppression. I'm not very good at communal stuff. But uh, I certainly w- loved Burning Man. Yeah. So you
3: got dragged kicking and screaming the first time, but you went back. So you did find something there.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, a, a landscape like you've never seen in your life. will never see again anywhere but there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the, uh, it, and it's the land of uh, serendipity. Anything can happen because nothing can be fully regulated. You don't have your fucking cell phones, for starters, so you don't know how to – you have to communicate with people. <laughs> so, and, and, and that becomes just a great adventure. I would wander out from our RV. Yes, we had an RV. <laughs> oh, there we go. There they are. Oh, listen, the RV is leaking as we speak. <laughs> Put some
3: air in those tires. <laughs> uh, see, that's, that's what...
0: <laughs> that's
3: the, that's the that's mean the Burning part. Man That's the mean about. Burning Man thing. <laughs>
0: Uh but um where was I? Oh wandering out. Um I ended up I had have a, I didn't have a playa name the first year. That's the you know name you give yourself when you go there. And what is your playa name? Mine? I know you've got one. Uh Pinko. <laughs> I like that. Yeah,
3: it's sort of a commie pinko reference, yeah. but also because I just turned And your coloration when you getting...
0: I just turn pink and um, I called I, I was I just wandered around looking for sofas so I called myself sofa daddy <laughs> um, and strangely I mean, there are sweetest sofas sweetest young people yes oh we have a sofa of course said the completely naked young beautiful woman with jewels on her everything on her everything <laughs> <laughs> on her altogether it's it's uh it's magical, and I knew it would be great for the for the book. I use a lot of this in the book i use so Michael gets called sofa daddy um, and uh because precisely because it worked the way San Francisco did that a lot of really varied people could bump into each other in this place that Mary Ann could go for instance, and you know that there's everything from boho to uh high tech and and, and the twain is always meeting.
2: You can find more Joycasts and show blogs. Go to joy.org.au.
3: So I want to veer off a little from the uh, Tales books just for a moment because you've written some other books as well. And, um, uh, in fact, you wrote something as a series of magazine articles that, that – uh, I had a part in digging out of the archives for you that you've recently republished called Jackie Old. I
0: owe you everything for that, Carl. Well, I'll take everything. it. Right here, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> I credited you in the forward. I did, I, it was the greatest thrill to have this old piece of this work <laughs> from 32 years ago, and you stood up and read it at, uh, at a Litquake event. And the audience was laughing, and I was laughing because... It, it, I could barely remember what I'd written. You know, I had that distance on it. So it's a great piece that uh, Armistead
3: had mentioned at a cocktail party, and that's that's when I did some research and dug it out and and surprised him with it. But he uh, uh, he wrote about a, a futuristic San Francisco in which Jackie Kennedy is sort of like a, kind of a Grey Gardens
0: character. Yeah, she's Edie Beale. She's it. I wrote it in nineteen eighty, and it's imagining nineteen ninety nine when Jackie would be... Oh, my God, Jackie would be 70. The earthquake, the big earthquake, has happened in the city, and uh, people are forced to live in tents in the park, Uh, something that agrees enormously with the gay population in the the context of this story. (laughs) And Jackie... God... I'll tell the whole story, and then they can't spend a dollar ninety-nine on Kindle and read Jackie Old. A dollar <laughs> ninety-nine
3: on Amazon, people—you <laughs> can afford it. Well, it's actually it's, like you've imagined Burning Man, because there's all these people living in tents in these fabulous—you know—that they've decorated gorgeously, and
0: uh... I've al- I've always been fascinated by those configurations. That's why I did—I mean, that's why the Bohemian Grove intrigued me, and significant others, and why I butted it up against a women's music festival called Women Wood. Uh, I realized when I was writing about Burning Man, oh my god, it's all the same thing. They're social constructs with certain pressures that people are nervous about when they approach them.
3: Another uh, one of your works that I really love is The Night Listener, if anyone is familiar with that novel. Um, And uh, it was made into a movie starring Robin Williams. I understand you got to get close to Robin Williams.
0: Oh, I've known Robin since the 70s. Really, I've known him since Uh pre-Nanu-Nanu. I knew him. I didn't know that. Um, I had my 40th birthday party up at his ranch. He grabbed my little toy poodle and did like 15 minutes with the poodle. I mean... (laughs) He made the poodle talk. He talked back to the poodle. He had huge fights. <laughs> um, precious and, uh, you know, a, a, norma- a man of enormous intelligence. Yeah. Um, so wonderful to be around. And everyone I know ha- had the, that loved him had the slight feeling that they were doing something wrong because they couldn't get him to stop mm-hmm. being on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You yearned for that moment. Where things were quiet, and you could do that, I had a few with him on the set of the night listener um, because it's it 's late at night and uh, and it 's a special little community a movie a movie set a movie set but uh, yeah, I was, I was so excited when he called and said that he wanted to do it, yeah. so excited and uh, and I think he did a beautiful job uh, the movie i 'm to blame for because I was one of the writers, and um, the pressure comes suddenly to uh, to thrillerize everything. And I knew that the big problem with The Night Lister being a movie is, the reason it works as a novel is that there are a lot of phone calls in it. And if you read a phone call in a novel, you picture who's on the other end of the line. If you watch a movie where you're not seeing who's on the other end of the line, you have questions immediately. And that uh, that destroys a, a major spot. I'm trying to talk about it, but not without giving it away. But I'm very proud of that. Thank you for your compliment about it. I'm really proud of that book. Oh, it's
3: a wonderful book. It's, I really urge people to read it. And uh, um, I want to, well, since you're mentioning movies, let's talk for a minute and then we're going to turn it over to questions uh, uh, about the wonderful productions that they made out of Tales of the City where, among other things, the world got to meet Laura Linney and you got to develop a great friendship with, with her.
0: Wow, yeah, that was one of the big, big blessings of Tales, um, meeting her and becoming close to her and realizing how alike we are in a lot of ways. That's why she was so instinctive about Mary Ann, because mm-hmm. Mary Ann Simois. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a lot, of, a lot of me goes into that, into that character. Um, and, um, yeah, it was, it's been special with Laura. We were between husbands at the same time. We went, we went antiquing together, as <laughs> some men and some women do. Did you go out and try to break up a couple together? No, 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 no. We sat around and we got acted depressed and listened to Amy Mann records together. <laughs> And Amy was, I mean, Laura was so excited when she got to be in an Amy Mann video like a year ago where Amy Mann had a robot and it was played by by Laura Linney. Okay, YouTube. You can find it, YouTube it, Amy Mann, Laura Linney.
3: Um, We're going to take questions from the audience, and I think there's someone from the library who has a mic. Hello. Um, So raise your hand and, I'm sorry, what's your name? Jennifer. Jennifer is going to come to you so that you can ask Armistead a question. Here's someone over here. Yes, where did the Twenty Eight Barbary Lane come from? In in terms of you know the idea that that sort
0: of space that you always wanted to write about it or set your characters there. Um, well, I lived not far from Macandrew Lane on Russian Hill, and I knew a lot of other similar places. I lived uh, for many years on Telegraph Hill and. There was havens down there when you go down the Filbert Steps, and I just love the notion of the way this city makes these little walkways into city streets. People carry their groceries down to go home, and have to move their furniture down to live there in the first place. But um, I, it just intrigued me, and uh, and I so I kind of used uh Mac- I used Macandry, the visual, the staircase. And then I described it as being where Havens is, which is off of, um, up at the crest of Russian Hill. Anyway, there's a little narrow, Barbary Lane-like alleyway there. So it's just, uh, I've always had a real, a strong sense of home, um, and I, and I, always loved it when addresses and locales became famous so much so that you wanted to go visit them. When I was 15 I went to Atlanta with my parents and said, so I know it's fictitious but where would Tara be if it were here? <laughs> 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 I want to figure out where to whirl my mental skirts. <laughs> I think it's fun to, for the writer to connect with the physical geography of it. It helps you. It's an aid in a way. You don't have to sit there and remember all of Narnia because you made it up. (laughs) 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 Narnia is just outside the door, you know.
1: Thanks. Um, When you were talking earlier about um, how they wanted you, uh, the the Chronicle wanted to, were trying to edit out certain words, um, you know, like shit kicker and and all the rest of that kind of Mm -hmm. stuff um did did it go beyond uh just words though i mean were there episodes or things that you had written uh that had that you couldn't actually use in this in the series yeah there were
0: no yeah well no they didn't get away with it they tried (laughs) (laughs) um i got a call from one of my cohorts in the in the people department and she said they're going to pull tomorrow's column this was after the, uh, the whatever the referendum was in Dade County happened, and basically the gay folks lost, and Anita Bryant won. I actually uh, talked to people who said, "Well, you know, basically they were saying time to go back in the closet."
1: Right. I I asked. Uh, I, I was wondering if if perhaps uh, there were scenes like that. Um, I'm sure we all would love to read the scenes that were cut out of the. Uh...
0: Well, I don't know how interesting it would be, but the, the particular line that set them off uh, and that seemed might like most be most offensive to people in the sunset. <laughs> um, was uh, uh, Michael saying, making basically the speech I was making? I don't care, you know, how that referendum went. When I came out of the closet, I nailed the door shut. And that was considered to be too provocative and firebrand. It's really easy to forget that when I started Tales of the City, um, it was a year after homosexuality had stopped being a mental illness. According to the American Psychiatric Association, I think it was 75 when they took it off the list of illnesses. And and the, the silence imposed on just being gay was enormous. I mean, I had a wonderful advantage with Tales of the City because I could report on things that people weren't even talking about happening. Randy Schultz came a couple of years later and dug in with a journalistic angle on that. But it was there. It was this beautiful, blossoming, burgeoning thing that you could you could see. And, uh, and I could, Well, the short version is I called up the editor and said, if you pull that, I'm quitting. And... Um, he said, you don't really mean that, and I said, yes, I do, and <laughs> hung up and thought, oh, fuck, I've just totally killed the goose that laid the golden egg, you know. Uh, but he called back half an hour later and said, well, all right. And uh, the, I had the power from that moment on. I could pretty much do what I wanted. It was Joan Crawford moment. It don't, was, don't wasn't it?
3: fuck with me, fellas. <laughs>